Good morning. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Sorry, it was very hot. <clears throat> Guys, I don't know if it's the weather or if it's because Bonnie, right before goodness of God, had us inhale, but I feel like we need to exhale this morning. We've been holding our breath for 25 minutes. It's incredible feat, actually. <clears throat> I do want to take just a second before, before we jump into the message, and uh, Pastor Jade mentioned last week in another message on mourning and praying and fasting, how when there are national or even international crises that happen, that we want to do our best as insofar as we are possible to take a moment and pause and pray and acknowledge the hurt and the pain of our brothers and sisters. Uh, and so I want to pray, number one, for those affected by Hurricane Ian this week. Um, I am a Floridian. Most of my Florida is in Florida. I see the lockets, or most of my family is in in Florida. The lockets here, similar, have a bunch of family in Florida, and uh, so much of the state of Florida is truly devastated that, as I'm sure that you guys know as well as I do, they're still just uncovering bodies and calculating the damage. And also, I, I found out this morning of a really weird occurrence in the country of Indonesia. Uh, uh, sometime in the last two days, there was a soccer match, and the, for the first time in over 30 years, the home team lost. And so some of the crowd began to riot. This is real, by the way. This is not a joke. Um, some of the crowd began to riot, and the police and the security on site couldn't get it under control, so they released a bunch of tear gas and thousands upon thousands of people stampeded for the exits and over 170 people were stampeded and and died. And this is just in the last two days. It's the second worst tragedy by death toll at a sporting event in recorded history. So for these two things, and then I just had a sense this morning, you know, we, we talk about very often that living the Christian life is learning how to celebrate with those who are celebrating and learning how to grieve with those who are grieving. And I just had a sense that there are a handful of people in this space that are walking through a really heavy, difficult time. And it doesn't have to be the worst time of your life, or it doesn't have to be some terrible tragedy. But if you're just going through it right now, would you be so bold as to raise your hand? We're just going to pray for you. We're not going to make a spectacle of you or do anything crazy, but we are just going to say, Lord, would you, through the people of God, rally around these, your children, And so, guys, if your hands were up, and we don't have to get up, but if you are near people, just lay your hands onto these people. If you're not near anyone, go ahead and just stretch your arms forth. Lord, there are all of these burdens and hundreds, if not thousands more, present in this space alone this morning that people are carrying. Burdens for work, school, family, finances, relationships, children, spouses, parents, The list goes on and on and on. And you see every one of them, and even more importantly, you care about every burden that is being carried in this place. Lord, for those who are affected by the hurricane in Florida and even in the Carolinas, Lord, we pray your comfort and your peace around those whose lives have been upended, whether by death of a family member or a friend, or maybe they've lost a significant amount of what they own. Maybe they've lost personal belongings that no amount of insurance money could ever replicate. 
Lord, we pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted, that you would be near to the government officials and the first responders, those who are responsible for making decisions on behalf of all that is devastated and those who are missing and those who are missing material things and pets and friends and children and parents, all that is lost. God, we pray that you would be right in the midst of it. God, we pray for the country of Indonesia as they are dealing with this tragedy. Lord, I I truthfully don't even know how to pray other than just, Lord, be near. Lord, be near. How does a sporting event turn into something where 170 plus people meaninglessly die? God, would you be right there in the midst of it? And I pray that for those who have the space and the capacity or those who you might be wanting and choosing and selecting to carry this burden in prayer, I pray that we would give you our yes and that we would make space in our hearts and our minds throughout this week and the coming weeks as you would lay these things and the people that maybe are in front of us or right behind us who are carrying burdens. Lord, bring them to our mind. And when they come to mind, may we intercede for them and may we think about them and pray over them. Lord, be near to them. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thank you for going there. Uh, I realize that with the information age that we live in, if we prayed every week for every tragedy, big, small, and in the middle, that we would never cease from praying. And there is a sense in which that might be good for us to keep these things in front of us as much as possible. But like I said, I am a Floridian, and, and this hit me pretty hard. Fortunately, just if any of you are wondering, my family is all okay, and... Um, but just, there's just a lot of loss and a lot of devastation. So I, I know that this might feel a little bit heavy, but you're the people of God. You can handle it. <laughs> My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Christy is up at New Life North today. They are having Outreach Sunday, and she's the pastor of Global Outreach and Global Engagement. So she is up at North. And Pastor Jade is in Long Island today preaching at the Zarlingos Church. For any of you who know Stephen and Anna Zarlingo, they were recently installed from associate pastors to senior pastors uh, at, at a church in Long Island. And Pastor Jade goes about every 18 months to two years, and he's there this weekend with our friends there in Long Island. So today we are going to be uh, jumping into Nehemiah chapter 5 in just a moment. But I don't want to make the assumption that all of you have either been tracking or been here or paying attention during all of the sermons. So, to honor you, I am going to recap uh, the series thus far as briefly as I possibly can. So we've been in the book of Nehemiah, I believe this is week six, next week uh, will be our last week in the book of Nehemiah, and then Pastor Jade will be jumping into First Timothy after that, which is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I'm sorry I will not be here for that. We will be on sabbatical. But for today, here's the quick recap of the book of Nehemiah. The people of Israel have been exiled for generations, and they are now starting to come back to Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, Nehemiah is a Jewish son who has grown up in the Persian kingdom, and he's actually become the cupbearer to the Persian king, a really privileged position. And as such, there are people that are are Jewish who have just recently made the trek back to Jerusalem and have seen the devastation, and they made their way into Susa, where Nehemiah is, where the capital of the Persian kingdom is. And Nehemiah gets word of the devastation 
in the city of Jerusalem, and he is immediately burdened from the Lord to go back and to assist in rebuilding the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah ponders this in his heart for a while, prayerfully before the Lord, and eventually the king notices that he is sad in his presence. And so the king inquires of Nehemiah, and something in Nehemiah realizes, this is my moment. So he shares with the king, and he is so bold as to ask the king for a list of favors, to which the king says yes to all of it. He releases Nehemiah to go back with his favor, with his protection, and with his resources to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the walls. Well, of course, like anything done in the kingdom of God, there is immediate opposition from outsiders, a guy named Sanballat and his wee little friends, as Pastor Jade was joking for a number of weeks, come at Nehemiah with all of these accusations, with all of these threats, and Nehemiah rightly so recognizes them for what they are, and he keeps his hand to the plow. He keeps to the task of building the wall, despite all these varieties of opposition that he's coming up against. But then we come to a new kind of opposition in Nehemiah chapter 5. And chapter 5 is not necessarily chronologically where it is between chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 5, some scholars believe to be either at the tail end of the building of the wall or even many years after the building of the wall, but chronicling something that was happening during the period while the men left their fields and went into the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall with Nehemiah. So this morning, we're going to pick up at verse 1. Guys, we're going to read the whole chapter. But here's the good news. There's no genealogies, and it is eventful, okay? So do, with, do your best to track with me as we read all of chapter 5 here together. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others, a third cry, said, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry, Nehemiah, and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people only for them to be then sold back to us. They kept quiet. They could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money uh, to people money and grain but let us stop charging interest give back to them immediately their fields their vineyards olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them 1% of the money grain new wine and olive oil now quick insert here most of you are going 1% interest doesn't seem so bad 
Presumably, it was either 1% a month or 1% per week. So this is not 1% annually. This is really high interest. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take the oath to do exactly what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robes and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So much so, a person, or so, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, let it be, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Guys, we're, we're nearing the end. Here we go. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, so 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials came and ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. Must have been a hungry dude. <laughs> and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on his people. Remember me with favor, my God, for I have done, for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Okay, so what is happening? So Nehemiah here, at least toward the end of building the wall, some time in that period, all of the wives who had been out in the fields were feeling the collateral damage of all of the men going to build the wall in the city of Jerusalem. But the men are building the wall, therefore somebody has to go out into the fields. So the women and the children are now working the fields, and there are other responsibilities then that are getting backed up. This is the way that economies work, as we all know. When one person does something that they would normally do, or one person forfeits doing something they would normally do to take up a new responsibility, someone else has to fill the gap. And so over a period of time, the economy is crashing here, and they don't have grain. So what they end up doing is they take uh, property that had been in the family for years and years and years, and they end up having to mortgage it, to leverage it, so that they have money to go and buy grain. So now what ends up happening is the people who are nearest that can lend them are actually fellow Jews. And so fellow Jews are not letting them borrow money. They're lending them money at high rates of interest. So we have these Jews who are profiting and capitalizing off of the faithfulness of other people who responded to the call of God. So some people responded to the call of God to go. Others did not, and those who did not are now profiting on those who did respond to the call of God. So now we have this crisis, and there is an outcry amongst the people. The wives come, and the husbands are already there, and they cry out to Nehemiah, you've got to do something. 
Because first of all, we're hungry. We can't eat. And in order to get the little food that we do have, we've had to mortgage and leverage everything that we have. And on top of all that, some of us are having to sell our sons and our daughters into slavery. And we feel powerless. Hungry, indebted, and powerless. So Nehemiah is greatly angry, and he takes time to gain self-control, and then he goes and he brings the accusations to those who were doing in the wrong, who were in the wrong. So I have three points this morning, and here are the questions I want us to think about. How does Nehemiah respond to the interruption of injustice and the needs of the people? What does Nehemiah do? And how does he use his authority? And what does that reveal about godly leadership? Let's take just a moment and pause. Lord, this is your word, and these are your people. And I trust that you have words for your people, for every person in this space, and those watching online, for wherever they are at in their life. And I pray that you would filter my mouth and that you would open their hearts, their ears, and their minds. And may we allow the scriptures to be just that, the word of God unto us this morning. We ask that you would feed us on your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So what exactly does Nehemiah do? The first thing Nehemiah does is he heard their outcry and recognized it as the highest priority. Now this might seem like a little passing detail here, but if you are paying attention in chapters 4 and 6, which chronologically go together, you'll remember that Nehemiah had already had all of these distractions, that Sanballat and Sanballat's wee little friends had already come to Nehemiah time and time and time again, and they keep bringing these accusations, they keep trying to discourage him, then they try and manipulate him, And all the while, Nehemiah recognizes those things for what they are as distractions and keeps his hand to building the wall. And in this case, he has the discernment to recognize that this is different, that this is not just a distraction. How many times have you and I been called to do something in our lives and we are certain we have been called and asked by God And we end up accomplishing the task at the cost of the people that that task was meant to serve. Think about how easy that would have been for Nehemiah in this scenario to just go, guys, we're so close. Keep pressing on. We'll deal with it later. Keep pressing on. The thing I was tasked with is building the wall. That's what God asked me to do. I'm a general contractor, not a social worker. This is what God has called me to do, but Nehemiah doesn't do that. He recognizes in the moment that this is now the thing that is of utmost importance, even usurping building the wall. Nehemiah recognizes that if he, if he builds the wall, but the people die of starvation or they're indebted for generations, then it's all meaningless. He understood this at a core level, and somehow he understood it quickly. Building the wall was one step toward the restoration of the nation of Israel, but internal exploration would compromise everything they had been working toward up until this point. 
And I want us to not breeze over this as just a little passing detail and think about what are the things that God has called you to do in your life, big or small. Stewarding your family, stewarding your business, the place that you work. Maybe explicitly kingdom-minded Christian things. Some of you carry inside of you burdens for people groups, burdens for certain kinds of people socioeconomically. What are the things that God has called you to do? If you're anything like me, it is really easy to care about that thing very deeply on a visceral level until I get a plan to fix it. And then as soon as I get a plan to fix it, I am on that plan. And this is, in a lot of ways, this is really good because something like that is what actually empowered Nehemiah to recognize the distractions immediately and not give Sanballat any attention. But then there was also something in him that heard the cries of the people. And in a moment, he knew, this is the thing I have to give my attention to. Because if I don't, nothing else will matter. Here's what I want you to hear. God's call is always ultimately about people, not accomplishing tasks. God's call is always ultimately to serve people not to accomplish tasks. Bonnie uh, told me the other day, she was asking, what am I preaching about a couple of days ago? And I said, well, these are the things I'm going to talk about. And I, somehow I had this point on the forefront of my mind and I said it to her. And she said, that's really funny because I've been saying this to Eloise. Eloise is our four-year-old. And she's been saying, baby, people matter most. And so something happened, I think it was on Thursday, where Eloise asked for something and Bonnie said, I, I can't give you that. And she said, but mommy, people matter most. <laughs> and so I, I say that to you. She is very much listening, and the wheels are spinning, I tell you. But I say that to you so that you know, yes, that people matter most. But ultimately in the Christian life, it comes down to wisdom and discernment. Because sometimes people don't actually know what is best for them and what they actually need. That would be my four-year-old, who about 98% of the time does not know what is best for her or what she needs. And so sometimes it requires the discernment to say, I know this feels like a pressing need right now, but I really sense that we're to keep moving forward with the vision. And then there will be other times where we go, I need to stop. We need to press pause here and focus on whatever feels like the most pressing need to someone in the moment. And this is not a technique. This isn't something where, you know, if it's this, then we do this. And if it's this, then we do this. This is, this is something that prayerfully we hear and we learn to discern by the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 reveals a test. Would Nehemiah recognize the purpose behind his task? Or would he only seek to accomplish the task? Nehemiah does recognize. He passes the test. How? Number two, Nehemiah did not react hastily. He took time to gain self-control. I want us to look together at this verse, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7, I'll put it up on the screen. Actually, I'll start in verse 6. When I, Nehemiah, heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. 
There's something really interesting about this verse. It's translated dramatically different from translation to translation. So if you pull up Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or whatever, and you look at this verse and a number of different translations, you will see it's translated radically differently. And here are some of the ways that it's, tr- it's translated. One, I just read, I pondered them in my mind. But the closer we get to the actual Hebrew, it says something a little more like this. I mastered my feelings. Or the most precise translation, my heart or my spirit, my nephesh was ruled. Nehemiah's spirit was ruled. And then he went and confronted the rulers, and the officials. Proverbs 16.32 reads like this in one translation. One who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And one who rules his spirit, same Hebrew word, is better than one who captures a city. What is the point? The point here is that lots of people are capable of doing really big, grandiose, powerful things. But it actually takes far more power in the form of restraint to have self-control and discernment. The one who masters and rules their own inner life. And this is not something that we do by our own power. This is something that we do by the power of the Spirit at work in the people of God, at work in the Word of God, and at work in prayer in our lives. To allow the Holy Spirit to manifest what many of the ancient fathers believed to be one of the most difficult fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. So notice what Nehemiah did not do. It says, Nehemiah was angry. And he allowed his spirit to be ruled before he went to the officials and the rulers who were in the wrong. Anger, even when it is righteous, can be destructive if it is not submitted and mastered. Sometimes we're outraged at something, but not really for the people who are impacted. Now, I'm going to read some things here in just a second, but I want you to think about the issue in society, don't say it out loud, but the issue in society that gets your blood boiling more than anything else. Think about it. And I want you to honestly think and allow yourself time. We're not going to take too much time to do it right now. But what angers you about that thing? Is it the way that people's lives are negatively impacted? Or is it that it feels... Like that thing, whatever it is, is actually a threat to your own way of life. I want you to think about that. Nehemiah was angry, but we don't know exactly what was at the root of his anger. Think about this. It could have been he was angry because this problem was now slowing down the work. It could have been that this was another nuisance, that he was angry because Sanballat finally left, and now there's something else, another problem to deal with. What if Nehemiah's anger was actually rooted in the fact that he felt unprepared to deal with this kind of issue? He had been building the wall long enough, learned how to mobilize people, but like I said, he's a general contractor now, not a social worker. Nehemiah could have felt unprepared. What if that was actually at the root of his anger? Or 
what if this situation reveals that things weren't actually going as well as he had perceived them to be going? What if this reveals there's actually a much deeper wound in the people of God than broken walls? And now he realizes this is a big old hairy thing I got to deal with. And I thought we were on the other side of this. I thought the wall's looking really good. Or what if he was angered because it was a bad reflection on his own leadership? He felt like he had been leading the people. We'll never know. Nehemiah may not even know. Only God knows. The point of me reading these is because sometimes even our righteous indignation, our holy discontent, as a famous pastor always used to say, might actually have things that are attached to it that are not holy. Things that are provoked alongside what is pure that are actually part of our humanity. And what we often do is assume that that is a bad thing that I'm angry at, therefore my anger is pure. And so we allow ourselves to act in our anger and actually leave destruction in our wake. So Nehemiah takes time and he allows his heart, his soul to be mastered before he steps into doing anything. So you might be thinking, man, that's fantastic. How in the world do we master our inner life, our heart, our soul, our mind, our emotions? And the first thing I want to say is our emotions are good. They're not meant to be suppressed. And thankfully, in the last 20 or 30 or I don't know, Jim could tell us a little more. But it does seem like there is a little mini revolution where humans are starting to acknowledge the positive aspects of giving voice to our emotions. But here's the thing. Our emotions are like dashboard indicators. They tell on us. Our emotions tell on us. We're not meant to give them the steering wheel, but we are meant when something pops up on the dashboard to go, hold on, I need to slow down. What is happening? I'm angry. Am I angry because of the way these people are being exploited? Or am I angry because of all these other things that are disrupting my life? So we pause, take time, and examine it. Examine it before the Lord. Lord, what is exactly making me so angry when my kid does this? Is it because I'm truly angered and upset for the way that I know this will impact them? Or is it because it feels like it reveals something negative about my parenting. Or it reveals something that's an inconvenience to me and my life. And you fill in the blank with whatever that is in your life. And you bring it before the Lord and you sit with your journal open and say, Lord, speak to me. Because I don't want to presume that I know what is in my own heart. And you sit with that prayerfully until you have at least a measure of understanding and here's the thing, we don't normally think discerningly or strategically when we're enraged. That's saying it really lightly, and Mike knows it. <laughs> we don't tend to think strategically or wisely or discerningly when we're enraged, even with righteous anger. Pause, sit with it before the Lord and say, Lord, purify this and allow what is really of you, what is really a holy discontent to stay, to remain, and to be the fuel for the change that you are calling me to. So 
When you're outraged, ask yourself, am I upset for the way things are affecting the the most vulnerable around me? Or am I really just feeling like my way of life is threatened? When our hearts are mastered, we are postured to discern God's solution to the real problems. Notice their response when Nehemiah confronts the nobles and the officials. Two things. They were quiet because they had nothing to say. And then they agreed that they were in the wrong and agreed to give it all back and took a vow to not do it again. I have never in my life confronted someone and that was their response. (laughs) This is how we know the work of God was present in their midst. This isn't a technique. This isn't something where we go and we say, okay, exactly how did Nehemiah do this? I'm going to do this the next time I need to confront somebody. No, 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 no. That's not what this is. This is the fruit of Nehemiah's emotions being submitted to the Holy Spirit. The fruit of it was that he brought it to them, and something happened that only God could have done. They said, yes, we were wrong, and we vowed to not do it again. Number three, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah never allows worshiping God to be separated from loving people. What does Nehemiah do? What does he actually do? He gathers them together, and he calls for them to live, what? In the fear of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting thing. What he very rightly could have said is, live right and quit charging your brothers and sisters interest. Quit exploiting people. But before he says any of that, he settles it under the umbrella of, guys, this is a serious thing. Live with the fear of the Lord. And then he calls them to stop doing it, to give it all back, and to take a vow to never do it again. So what is Nehemiah modeling here? He's modeling what Jesus says in Matthew when he's asked which of the commandments is the greatest. And he says, actually, it's one two-pronged commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here is the tragedy of the Christian faith historically lived out over the last 2,000 years. The number one tragedy is that uh, that's a really bold statement. Maybe I shouldn't say it quite so boldly. But one of the greatest, greatest tragedies about Christians throughout history is that we have tended to refuse doing those two things together. That we have insisted on making camps of people that are focused on one of those two things. And Nehemiah, right here at the beginning period of the restoration of Israel after the exile, refuses for that to be a thing. He calls them to love God, to live in the fear of God, and here's how you do that. Not by more meetings in the temple, not by more sacrifices, not by offering up more prayers, but by stop treating your brother and your sister unjustly. That is how you live in the fear of the Lord. And here's the thing. Nehemiah doesn't just ask them to live differently. He goes first and does the most himself. Those little verses there at the end where it says, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. 
Think about this. Nehemiah doesn't just call them to lay down their rights and to stop being opportunistic. He actually goes first, and he does it for 12 years. He doesn't just say once a month or one time, I'm going to give everything that's allotted to me for the sake of you guys. And look, I'm modeling what it is to be a self-sacrificial leader. For 12 years, he gives them everything that is allotted to him as governor. And there is that little line in there that says that his predecessors, the governors and their assistants who had gone before him, had never done that. They had always taken what was theirs, even when it was a heavy burden on the people. Nehemiah changes the culture. He changes the trajectory, not just by saying what was right, but by doing it first himself. He's the one here with the most to give, and he gives it all. Does this ring a bell? Community attendants and Seth, if you guys would come. We're about to come to the table. But I want to read another passage before we do. Here's what we really learn from Nehemiah chapter 5. That building the wall could not make them into the people of God. Only learning to fear God and live selflessly for the sake of their neighbor could make them into the people of God. Nehemiah reveals that you cannot walk in the fear of God without loving your neighbor as yourself, and you will not love your neighbor as yourself without the fear of God. Jesus knew this, which is why when he was asked for one commandment, he gave them one commandment with two sides. Friends, it does not matter how pure our hearts are toward God if we don't treat people with the love of Jesus. Whatever issue you feel passionate about, if what's driving your righteous indignation isn't concern for the most vulnerable people affected by that issue, then it is still yet impure. And it needs the touch of the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. Nehemiah fed 150 people at his table. And every Sunday when we celebrate, when we come here, we celebrate that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, gave everything so that all of us could sit at his table. I want to read a few verses from Mark chapter 10. If you're able to focus and not fall asleep, close your eyes and listen to these verses. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. They're starting off on the wrong foot. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. What they're asking for is the seat of authority. They want to be Jesus' right and left-hand men. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus responds. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Pause real quick. 450 years after Nehemiah, the same thing is happening. Officials and rulers are using their power, their authority, and their resources to lord it over the people that they are called to steward. So Jesus responds in verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be ser- but to serve, excuse me, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we pause for a moment before coming to the table, Jesus, we ask that you would examine our hearts and our motives. We might not feel in this place like we have the resources of a, of a governor or the authority or the power of one with real influence. But each of us have been entrusted relationships, some measure of resources and money, some measure of family members, of friendships, of places to attend school or to work. We've all been given some measure of a burden to carry with you. And we ask that you would purify and examine all that is within us as we attempt to do our version of building the wall, whatever that is. Holy Spirit, where our anger is wrapped up in things that are actually self-preserving, we ask that you would put your fire on it and purify it. Lord, where we've acted zealously and wounded people thinking we were helping them, would you bring healing and touch our hearts? God, we ask you to forgive us for the way that we've treated our spouses, our kids, our parents, those that were working to help us and we responded in anger, whatever it may be, Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do. And as Jesus tells us, for those of us who want to be first in his kingdom, we have to learn to be the servant of all. God, we're asking this morning that you would teach us to want to be the servants that you're calling us to be not to just do it to get a one-up, to not do it just so that we can get more in the kingdom of God, but to do it because we have an abundant love for people. Church, let's stand to our feet. The good news here is that Nehemiah, 450 years before, points us directly to Jesus Christ. That Nehemiah gave all that he was entrusted, which was more than most of us have, but still not nearly what Jesus had. And Jesus is the one who came as the one who spoke everything that is into existence. He condescended into creation to live amongst us as one of us, and not a ruler or an official, but one who worked with his hands and had relatively little on this earth. And he gave it all so that we could sit at his table with him. Jesus knew that none of us can meaningfully serve anyone in the world until we have first been served by him. And when we come to this table, what we are doing is we are allowing Jesus to serve us. 
before we go out into the world and try and give of what we don't have, we come into this space and we say, Jesus, we have little. We need to receive from you so that we can go out into the world and serve those with pure hearts who need it most. So this is the table of the Lord, not of New Life Midtown. So come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and receive from Jesus a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. This morning, I invite you to come to the table of the Lord. Exit out the left side of your row and come forward. And these communion attendants will look you in the eye and they will say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then if you will go back to your seat, we will receive of the elements together. Come.
the bread in our hands, these are the words of St. Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also have passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Break the bread and receive the body of Christ. same way, after supper, uh, that's dinner for those of you non-Southerners, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us receive the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. In just a moment, we will sing the doxology, but before we do, I want to remind you that the communion attendance are also prayer attendants and altar ministers. If there is a need in your life of any kind or any size, as soon as we sing the doxology, I'd like to invite you to come forward. And there are four groupings of uh, communion attendants here that would love to pray with you about whatever the issue is. Well, let's be reminded that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God. Church, it was so good to be together with you this morning. I hope that you guys will stick around and either come forward and pray or mingle with one another and pray for one another out in the seats. But today, we have been with Jesus and we have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you will go in the peace of Christ to every place that you are called to inhabit this week. Go in the name of the Lord. You are dismissed. <laughs>